0: Everyone, welcome to episode 143 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have some Patreon thank yous to deliver. Yes, some big thank yous. Yeah, we're doing a Patreon drive. For those of you who check out our social media, you saw that we did some posting about this over the weekend. Yes, we're trying to get up to
1: $300 in monthly subscribers by December 31st.
0: We're pretty close. We're at 248. Thank you to Robin and Chris for joining our Patreon family and to Colleen and Julie for upping their monthly contribution. We appreciate all of our Patreons so much. Absolutely we do. Thank you so much for that. And we made our first video for Patreon sponsors only and sent it out with our announcement that we're gonna be making on our anniversary episode, which is not this one, but, but the next the next one, one episode one hundred forty four. Super excited. It's going to be different than our typical episode. We're going to have some guests. We're going to take a walk down memory lane and make some new announcements. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Yeah. So what are you currently reading, Chris? Well,
1: you know, before we jump into that, I just wanted to make one more announcement for those listeners who are in Australia. One of the books that Emily and I both read and loved, The Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose, has had a play adaptation. And that is premiering in January as part of the Sydney Festival. So that is super exciting. That is
0: so cool. Yeah. I I,
1: wish I could hop on a plane and go. I
0: I wonder if it's going to be recorded in any way. We'll have to keep our eyes and ears open for that
1: one. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're looking for a good read, The Museum of Modern Love, definitely check it out. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, what am I currently reading? I've uh, started our next read-along book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. I'm listening to it on audio to start with. I do have the paperback copy. And I'm just amazed by the vivid pictures that she paints. I mentioned somewhere, I think it was on our Goodreads chat about the book, that sometimes when I'm listening to an audio book, I feel like, oh, I need to stop and write that down. Or, oh, I wish I was reading it and I could underline it. It's so bizarre. Her sentences are so vivid. I can picture myself underlining it.
0: Oh, isn't that weird? Yeah. yeah.
1: Really loving it. I mean, her voice is just tremendous. To hear an author who could read their own work so
0: well and comfortably is really a treat. I can't wait to start it. Cool. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm reading Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. And this book comes out on February 1st, which really isn't that far away anymore. <laughs> and this is a debut novel. And it's told from multiple perspectives about two siblings, Benny and Byron, who have gone their separate ways. Benny changed her plans when she was in college, and the family didn't approve. She was exploring her sexual identity, and her family didn't approve of that either. So she decided to just go and live her own life. And her mother has now passed away. And she's come back to California to meet up with her brother, who she hasn't seen in a long time. And the lawyer has... I can't remember if it's a video or an audio. I think it's just an audio that the mother made explaining some things from her past Mm. that she never shared with her family. Wow! I definitely have this fascination with people who lived entirely other lives and or I think people are never who you think they are. People have secrets or just don't share who they are completely. And this book strikes of that. Then the book goes back and forth in time because as the mother is – explaining to her children from the great beyond. It goes back in time as she's telling her story. I'm enjoying it very much. I'm only about 30% in. But the title Black Cake comes from the Caribbean cake that's very well known, that's super thick and rum soaked and filled with fruit. And classically, when you get married, you take part of your wedding cake made out of this black cake recipe and you put it in the freezer and you eat a piece of it every year oh yeah cool. for a long time
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, i was gonna ask you about the title because yeah. that is that is different yeah. and
0: interestingly Lori colvin's book home cooking she had a whole essay about black cake so oh, very cool. yeah what else are you reading
1: I'm reading a book that I didn't anticipate reading, but I am. I'll talk a bit more probably about it in our biblio adventure section. It is The White Ship Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream by Charles Spencer. It is about a shipwreck from the year 1120 that changed the course of Europe and probably the world. It's not too much to say that. I'll talk a bit more, like I said, during our Biblio adventure, because I watched an event. It was really fascinating. The book is described as the Titanic meets Game of Thrones. You can't really walk away from that. Not that I've watched Game of Thrones or read it, but yeah, I know what kind of the vibe is.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what about just read? What have you just read, Emily? Emily? I finished listening to State of Terror (laughs) by Hillary Rodham Clinton and Louise Penny. I didn't expect to love this book as much as I did. It's a geopolitical thriller. The main character is a secretary of state. So obviously, I was thinking about Hillary Clinton the whole time. But what it really is also is a friendship story, a female friendship story, and a story about democracy. Chris and I often talk about civics and how important it is to understand civics. And I definitely felt that way when I was reading this book and it made me want to go take a civics class because if nothing else, just like all of the positions in the White House, she comes into contact with all the different people helping to keep democracy in place. And I was like, oh, what what is their job exactly? I mean, I know what the secretary of state does. I know what the president does. Anyway, that part was very interesting. But the main plot point is that there are some bombs that have gone off in buses throughout Europe. There is the threat of nuclear war pending. And so the Secretary of State is racing around the world, literally trying to deal with this issue. But when I read the acknowledgments, there was a friend that Hillary Clinton had all through her childhood. Louise Penny became friends with her she sadly passed away. And so one of the main characters in the story, Betsy, is based on this friend and plays the role of the counselor to the Secretary of State. If I got the chance to interview them, (laughs) hint, hint, world. No, just kidding. I would ask Hillary Clinton, like, is that really true? Can the Secretary of State just have someone who's not really official, not getting paid, not in the government officially, but is your counselor who travels with you and is someone you can just talk to about life in the world and your stresses and all of that. So Betsy ends up having a role to play in the pending doom coming to the world. And it's beautiful. The relationship between these women is really beautiful. And then the Secretary of State's children are also characters in the book. Those of you who love Louise Penny and Inspector Gamash, there is a very fun nod to Three Pines. That's awesome. That's all I'm going to say. I do not want to ruin anything, but I gasped when it happened and I was, oh my God, I can't wait to tell Chris this. <laughs> Should I tell Chris? <laughs> <laughs> so I loved it so much. Again, it's called State of Terror. It was narrated by the actress Joan Allen. I, had intended to go get a copy of the physical book, but I just couldn't stop listening. That's awesome. I can't wait. Now I have to decide whether to read it or listen to it. I'm so confused. It was a great listen. I hadn't listened to an audiobook in a really long time. But I really enjoyed it. Very cool. Well, I finished a book
1: that made me cry several times. Tears of Love, as we talk about in the interview with the author, Jenna Blum, I did read Woodrow on the Bench, Life Lessons from a Wise Old Dog. Oh, God. After I finished it crying, I was crying over my own dogs. (laughs) They were like, (laughs) what is going on, you know? (laughs) But um, it's the story of her life with her, mainly like the last year of her life with her dog Woodrow, who lived to be 15. This is about his 14th year primarily when he develops congestive heart failure and needs a lot of help moving around and just the impact that he had on Jenna's life from day one how even in his final days he opened so many doors for her which Mm. it's just a beautiful story I really enjoyed it and I don't really read a lot of pet memoirs because sometimes they just seem very similar I think to what I have experienced and this is just very different. It's a caretaking story that goes both yeah. ways, as I yeah. kind of have said. That's a so, good way to say it. I read an advanced reader copy of Woodrow on the Bench, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the finished version, if there are pictures in it, I'm hoping, and then to read the acknowledgements and all that good stuff. And I know technically you're not supposed to read from an uncorrected proof, but I'm going to break the rules and do it anyway, just to give you a sense of what's her style and how she writes about Woodrow. And this is kind of from the middle of the book. She's talking about all of the places that Woodrow had gone swimming. He loved to swim. He was a black lab. Labs are known for their swimming prowess, retrieving the dead ducks from hunters. One of my earliest dog mom fails involved taking adolescent Woodrow to the Charles River and releasing him into it, believing like a fool he'd come back. Woodrow ignored the ball I'd thrown, having spotted a raft of ducks. He arrowed toward them, and the ducks let him get within inches, then flew off farther into the river, where they alighted and waited. When Woodrow got close, they did it again. As he reached the central current that would sweep him out to the Atlantic, I raced along the bank, screaming for him to come back and attracting a crowd. We were on the verge of calling the Boston Fire Department to come retrieve my retriever when Woodrow, obeying some mysterious instinct of his own, decided he'd had enough and returned. What? He seemed to say, dripping on land as everyone clapped and cheered. What are you humans making a fuss about now? I just went for a little swim. <laughs> so <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Woodrow's voice is present. He calls her
0: Mamo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very cute. So it's very sweet. And actually, when you're at that point in the memoir, it was palpable that scene as I was reading it. I mean, her writing is just really energetic in that way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. If
1: you're a dog lover, a pet lover, want to know what Jenna Blum's life is like, totally check out this book. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to out myself and say, I'm really neither of those things. I don't have a pet. I don't not like pets, but I don't have a pet. And I loved this book. Yeah. Well, you do give my doggy snacks. I do. That's true. But you don't live with them. (laughs) (laughs) And we have at the end of this episode, an interview with Jenna. So stand by for that. I also read The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. This is a book for my book club. This book got state of terror, I have to say. (laughs) It was the book I read after I finished State of Terror. So it was a tough act to follow. (laughs) But I did enjoy it. It's about a group of friends who are living in a senior living facility. They have a club called The Thursday Murder Club where... One of the members had a history of solving crimes, and she takes it upon herself to get files of unsolved crimes. And this group sets out to solve them. It's really poignant. His writing is super sweet. I'm going to read a couple little brief bits here. The name of the place they live is called Cooper's Chase. Cooper's Chase always wakes early. As the foxes finish their nightly rounds and the birds begin their roll call, the first kettles whistle and low lamps start to appear in curtained windows. Morning joints creak into life. Nobody here is grabbing toast before an early train to the office or packing a lunchbox before waking the kids. But there is much to do nonetheless. Many years ago, everybody here would wake early because there was much to do and only so many hours in the day. Now they wake early because there is much to do and only so many days left. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really poignant in that way. It's also just fun. I think there's a misconception that people go to a senior living facility and just sit in their room and do nothing. These folks are very busy. They're still very active in the world. It's also very British. There are some sweet aspects of that too. When they start this Thursday murder club... They meet in the Jigsaw Room. The Jigsaw Room is currently being used by Chat and Crochet. Chat and Crochet is a fairly new group, Detective Chief Inspector, formed by members who had become disillusioned with knit and natter. Too much nattering and not enough knitting, apparently. (laughs) So it's cute little writing like that. I really enjoyed it. It's narrated in certain chapters by a character named Joyce, and these chapters are her journaling about their gallivants together when they're trying to solve a murder that's taken place on the grounds where they live. The paperback copy, which I read, also had a very fun excerpt that wasn't included in the final copy, which was really fun, I thought. And he said he just wanted to include it because he knew it didn't belong in the story, but he missed that scene because he liked it so much. And then I will also say that the second book in the series is out now and it's called The Man Who Died Twice. So the Thursday Murder Club is book one in the series by Richard Osman. Both of them are out now. So did you have any Biblio
1: adventures, Chris? I did. I did. I got to be a special guest on Sean the Book Maniac's BookTube channel over on YouTube. It was so much fun. He invited me to come and talk about uh, Jong Yoon's new book, Oh Beautiful, because he saw that I had read it and loved it. And he has a new series on his booktube called Bite Size Book Chats, where they're just five, 10 minute conversations with people about a book they've really loved and read recently. It could be a reread too. So that was super fun. I also gave a plug to Alice Henderson's new series, the Alex Carter series, because I love that much. He asked about what the most recent episode of the book Cougars was. It was a lot of fun. So I was on with three other folks and they all recommended really interesting books. Two that I'd heard of and one that I did not. So Mel, who is a booktuber over at Mel's Bookland Adventures, talked about A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid. She called it a snarky documentary. (laughs) (laughs) And Mel's a bit snarky herself. So that's kind of a compliment. Paul, who has a podcast with a friend called the Moocs and Gripes podcast, talked about Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner, which I want to read Wallace Stegner, and I have not. I'm glad they talked about that one, too, because I don't know if it was Sean or Paul who said they always say or write Angel of Repose, or that's how they, <laughs> and same thing with me, it took me the longest time to get it into my head to say Angel mm-hmm. of Repose. There's a woman named Cecilia, who's from Singapore, who talked about a book, Temptation, by Jeno Sezke, who's a Hungarian novelist. And that sounded really great, too. So if you're looking for really short book recommendations on YouTube, check out Sean
0: the Book Maniac's Bite sized Books. It's reviews. a great name. I Isn't love it? that. And yeah. we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Yeah. How about you? The only Biblio adventure I had was hopping in the car with you after we recorded last... Episode and running over to people get ready to pick up our read along books. I know why the cage bird sings by Maya Angelou. We couldn't go in, as we said on the last episode, they'd had some water damage, but we peeked around. We peeked in the windows. It's much bigger than I had anticipated. And they do a lot of events there. So hopefully we'll get a chance once they fix their roof to go in on site. Yeah, it's like this big L-shaped space Mm -hmm. with really great windows, lots of natural light, it looks like. yeah. Yeah. And just to remind you that our read-along Zoom chat is on December 12th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join the conversation. We still have space. And then we will discuss it on episode 145. And then also the Goodreads thread is up and running and people are chatting over there. Yeah. Please join us.
1: I can't wait to talk more with people about this. So good. good. Yeah. The other Biblio adventure I had was the one I mentioned previously about the white ship, and that was through the Mystic Seaport. They had an online Zoom event. The author Charles Spencer was in conversation with Christina Conant Brophy, who is the Senior Director of Museum Galleries and Senior Vice President of Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport. So that's a big, long title. But they had a wonderful conversation about this book and the ship. You know, you would think a book about a ship that sank in 1120, 900 years ago, wouldn't be as gripping or seem as relevant. But he's such a good storyteller, Charles Spencer. And I hadn't... Known about his books, a friend who reads a lot of history had said she reads all of his books because whatever he writes is fantastic, and this one is no exception. Henry I's only heir was on this ship; it was a ship that his wife had built for her husband as a tribute to him. They were leaving France to go back to England, and it was a big party. The prince was there with his entourage, and everyone is drinking. He started getting the crew to drink, so everyone was drunk. They shove off. This is 1120. They have oar power, oars and sails, and they're rowing out there, and they let the sails down too soon. So full speed ahead, they crash into a rock, Oh my! and it sank. And that rock is still there. It has a name, actually. (laughs) I don't remember what the name of the rock is. But this was the only heir to the throne. And there was only one survivor of this wreck who was a man, a common man who was a butcher. And the only reason he was on the ship was that a whole bunch of those people getting on the ship owed him money. And he wanted to make sure he got paid. (laughs) He was following them. Yeah. So the ship sank. The mast was still above water. So he crawled up it. And there was also one of the knights was there with him. And the knight did not make it through the night. He was dressed in fine clothes, which were not as warm. And he slipped away at some point. Whereas the butcher was wearing peasant clothing, clothing of his trade too. So animal skins. And that's probably what kept him alive. Wow. Is it because of him that the story has been told? Yeah, pretty much. Because no one knew what happened. They were far enough out, I guess, that People on land heard a big shout and a big cry, but they thought it was just everybody partying. They didn't know what happened until the next day when a fishing boat saw the butcher on this mast. Wow. So they didn't know what happened. Public service
0: announcement drinking and boating don't go well together. Not at all. To not, this
1: day. They yeah, don't. I know. And yeah. I was like,
0: just the whole thing of like, being at sea and bobbing around and having a lot of alcohol in your system mm-hmm. <laughs> just seems uncomfortable in general but yeah
1: wow yeah so what this what happened was it set off a whole chain of events that produced horrible wars for the the throne he's such a great storyteller, Charles Spencer. I hope there's a replay of the event because we'll definitely put a link in the show notes just to hear him talk about it. Did I say that I wasn't planning on reading it? I just yeah. thought, oh, I'll attend the event because I want to learn about this. And then I was in the bookstore and I read the chapter. And I was like, I'll just do the event. So then I did the event and then I was like, oh, I have to go back and get the book. So <laughs> that's how that played out. But Charles Spencer is also Princess Diana's brother. I was going to say he's not a royal, right? He does have some type of aristocracy. I looked at his web page. You know, they have the ancestral home where it's like 500 years old, and he's the 19th generation to live there. So he definitely has some chops.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, because Chris was reading this. This was her Friday Reads book. And so I did some research because I did that social media post and his website made it seem as if he was a royalty of some kind. And he's incredibly prolific. Yes. So if this book sounds interesting to people, check out his website. I'll put it in the show notes. There's lots of books to choose from. Yeah. And he was also on American TV for the longest
1: time as not necessarily a reporter, but a correspondent or something like that. I didn't know about that at all, but really wonderful storyteller. And he was just interested in history. Mm -hmm. So this white ship, people asked about it, and it used to be something that everyone knew. It was pretty common. Winston Churchill wrote a history of England in the 1930s, and he retold the story and apologized for telling a story that was so popular. Mm. And now people don't know about it. And in fact, he ended up writing this story because Alison Ware, the writer, had asked him to come and speak about queens. She was doing something about the queens of England. And he mentioned Empress Matilda, who never became queen. She should have been, but she did not. So he had to tell the whole story about the white ship. And he said the audience is riveted. And he's like, wow, this needs to be told, Mm the story. So that's what set him on this. He asked his publisher and he talked to his agent and publisher about it and they're like yeah go for it this sounds really fascinating especially since it's the 900th anniversary right yeah good book again that's the white ship by charles spencer i feel like this episode's going so fast
0: oh we're not done yet
1: (laughs) (laughs) do you have any upcoming johns I do. I am going to be attending an event that's actually tomorrow night, so it will be passed by the time this episode goes live, but we'll put a link in the show notes if there is a playback. It is an event through the Mark Twain House and Museum with David Damroche, whose new book is Around the World in 80 Books. He's going to be in conversation with Julia Pistel. So this book, Around the World in 80 Books, David is a professor of comparative literature and it seems that he deals a lot with earlier literature. So this book is something that he wrote during the beginning of the pandemic to help him calm himself and explore the world through
0: books. I don't know anything about it other than that, and I look forward to the event. And I'm so sorry to be missing it. I'm heading out tomorrow. I'm doing a huge driving trip I'm going up to Michigan to meet both of my kids for the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm doing it via Ohio. Don't ask. (laughs) But I am hoping to get to bookstores in both Ann Arbor, which is one of my favorite towns, and then Traverse City, which is where I'm going to be spending most of my time. So I've already queried my daughter, who recently moved to Traverse City, about bookstores there. And we have some ideas. And then she also told me the library is very cool. So I'm going to be doing hopefully some jaunting and gallivanting about the COVID numbers are not great in Michigan, but I'm going to put my mask on and go for it. Right. Well, we will send you good vibes on that trip. And I'm a bit envious. I love Michigan. Yeah, me
1: too. So beautiful. You're going Connecticut to Ohio to Michigan, and then back
0: to Ohio or straight back to Connecticut? I'll go straight back to Connecticut, but via Cleveland, which is where my brother lives. All right, cool. So I'm going to make a lot of stops. I usually look at these trips and I count the number of beds I'm going to be sleeping in. And I think this is a four bed trip. All right. Covering some ground. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> the other event that I hope to watch is the National Book Awards is tonight, actually. Mm-hmm. We'll probably talk a little bit about this next time, but I'm you know, I'm rooting for everyone, you mm-hmm. know, I think it's great to celebrate books. I'm kind of especially rooting for Melinda Lowe, who is the author of Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which is a book I read this year and really enjoyed. It was announced recently that her twenty twenty two fall release will be called A Scatter of Light. It's set in twenty thirteen after the Supreme Court decisions that brought marriage equality to the US. Mm-hmm. And the book tells the story of Arya Tang West, whose story of desire and self-discovery is subtly entwined with a note of closure for Lily and Kath from Telegraph Club. Oh. So it's not exactly a sequel, but there's something going on there. It's coming out in the fall of 2022,
0: A Scatter of Light. Awesome. I look forward to that. I love it when there are little nods in books. That's really fun. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I have a text thread with my book club group, and people were texting away this morning about the National Book Awards and how much great fiction there was this year and what's going to win, and we'll see. Yeah, I'm really looking for that. And Melinda's book is for a uh, pre YA.
1: Yeah, yeah. Novels. So. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do tonight because I have a lot of work to do. But there has to be something I can work on and have that on in the background. Right,
0: and, right. You know, Priorities. I know. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about our upcoming reads. And then we are going to make a couple suggestions for holiday gift giving as well. I know a lot of people I've been seeing are a little frustrated that folks are talking about holiday gift giving so early this year, but there's a lot of supply chain issues. So they're saying it really is a good idea to shop early and shop local. So we thought we'd make a few recommendations.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's already November 18th.
0: Well, it used to be that nobody talked about this stuff until after Thanksgiving, apparently. But
1: yeah, you know what? I saw people posting that they were in stores. This is like before Actually, Halloween, mm-hmm. that some stores are putting up Christmas yeah. stuff like that's just Yeah,
0: so. that's okay. People got to make a living.
1: I know. <laughs> and everybody's, you know, the Christmas music or holiday music can make people happy. Yeah. I guess it is mostly Christmas music. Yeah. Holiday music.
0: I don't hear much dreidel, dreidel, dreidel right? at the store.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gosh. So what are your upcoming reads, Chris? I only have one that's in my sweaty little hand right here. It's called Dead Silence. <laughs> and on the cover, it says A Ghost Ship, A Salvage Crew, Unspeakable Horrors by S.A. Barnes. This is coming January 2022, but it sounds pretty cool. I read just the first couple pages and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll,
0: I'll read this one. So that is one I plan on reading next. Right on. How about you? I'm lining up nonfiction, some of them to listen to on this big trip. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. I'm definitely going to start that. And then I have Unbound by Tarana Burke. Tarana Burke is the founder of the Me Too movement. So the full title of this is Unbound, My Story of Liberation and the Birth of the Me Too Movement. I'm really looking forward to this. I have the book and I'm going to get the audio. I've listened to several interviews with her. I just find her incredibly compelling. And then also, thank you to W.W. W. Norton. I requested and received a copy of *Taste Makers: Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America by Mayak Sen. So excited about this book. He's a food writer, James Beard Award winner. He used to work for Food 52, which is an online food site. He's talking about seven immigrant chefs slash cooks or cookbook authors. They're kind of a mix of people who came to this country and really had an impact on what he refers to as the food establishment which is a term that Nora Ephron coined many years ago. And then he also has what he calls an interlude chapter with Julia Child. Oh, cool. Yeah, which is interesting because a lot of people think she was French. She was not French. She did go to France, and she had such an interesting accent. I mean, I never thought she was from America when I was a kid and used to watch her shows. Yeah, her pacing, her lay. Yeah, yeah,
1: it was in- interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading this. It has a fantastic cover. I love it. I'm showing it to Chris. And then I'm also going to look for, but haven't found yet, some sort of mystery or thriller to listen to as well. Because sometimes on hour nine, that's what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, exactly. Do you want something really Action-packed or something more cozy?
0: Probably action-packed. Okay. I was actually thinking I might pull up some of our our mystery man's past recommendations. Totally. That would be yeah. a great idea. Yeah. So I'll report back. I have some long drives ahead. Mm-hmm. Lots of listening. <laughs> <laughs> so holiday fun. ideas. Yeah,
1: we have some pretty simple ideas this year. We didn't want to go too crazy. Yeah, we didn't want to overwhelm. Right. I have a recommendation based on Laura's experience. My wife is a slow drinker, but she really loves her hot chai. It's one of her special drinks that she makes when she's sitting down to write, but it gets cold so fast. So she used to have some type of warmer for a cup. It didn't really work all that well. And plus, she was always paranoid that she forgot to turn it off. Because the fire hazard on those things is real. When I worked at Loyola Medical Center one year, there was a fire in one of the offices because somebody put a stack of folders on one. Mm. I'm sure they're probably a little bit better than that nowadays, but you still have to be careful. So the one that she got and is in love with is by a company called Ember, and it's actually a ceramic heated mug that maintains a temperature between like 120 to 145, so nice and toasty, And it has a little disc that the cup sits on, and it's one of those contactless filaments that keeps the connection warm when the cup is on it. And you can also control it by a phone app.
0: That's cool. So So if you drive away and you think, oh, did I leave it on? Right, yeah, Yeah. exactly.
1: Because I think she said, like, when you shut it off, it does stay warm for quite a while after that. And you can leave it plugged in, I guess, all day if you wanted to. But still, I think most people probably don't want to do that kind of stuff. So anyway... That is again, Ember, E M B E R, ceramic heated mug. Cool. Yeah, I've seen her joy using it. (laughs) And I, you know, I don't care. I have my coffee, and if it goes cold, it doesn't really bother me that much. But then I drink my coffee black.
0: Mm, You know, I think it's
1: different when it's chai with milk
0: and all that kind of stuff. Well, my kid's running joke used to always be when I was looking for my tea, they would say, Mom, have you looked in the microwave? (laughs) Because I would always go to put it in there to warm it back up and then completely forget and find it with curdled milk the next day. (laughs) That's a great idea. I love that idea. I came across via a friend, actually, this new light that you can wear around your neck for reading and knitting. And it's called, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I think Glocusent. It's G-L-O-C-U-S-E-N-T. It's an LED neck reading light, and it's rechargeable. And really, you need to look at a picture of it to appreciate it. So I'll put a link in the show notes for this, of course. But they're affordable. They're only $19.99. They come in different colors. And I just think they're super cool.
1: I'm definitely going to check that out because I, you know, I often read on my e-reader at Mm -hmm. night in bed. But every now and then when I'm into actual physical book, that's what I want to read at night. I struggle with my little clip on light and the way the light gets directed and blah, blah, blah. So I'm totally going to check one of those out. It sounds comfortable like if you're laying down too.
0: Yeah. And I have a headlamp that I use in bed, but it's not very comfortable. So, I am excited about this as well. Cool. My next
1: suggestion is something super simple. It is so basic. You might laugh when I first say this, but index cards. That's my recommendation as a holiday gift stocking stuffer, tiny little treat that you can leave someone. I mean, you can get the classic white index cards, or they sell really funky colored ones now, some that are kind of pastellis, other that are neon, so people can color code their things. But I always use index cards for bookmarks so I could take notes on it. They're also great for leaving yourself messages or inspirational quotes. If there's quotes from a book you want to write down and post somewhere, I just think they're so handy and they're classic. So consider index cards.
0: Now, are you aligned or unlined
1: index carder? I'm a lined index carder. I love the lines, but then I also love the back that is not lined. Mm-hmm. If you want to get really fancy, I've also even found vertical index cards. You know how they're usually horizontally orientated mm-hmm. with the line, the red line, and then the blue ones usually. It was at Staples that I found them. They don't always have them, but they were vertically oriented, which is kind of nice for use as a bookmark. Yeah. Because you can put the title of the book on top of the index card. The only problem with them I have found, which I didn't think about initially, is filing them. Yeah. Because I do have little index card filing cabinet things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work well when you're flipping through things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. Good idea. Bink Foundation, which is an organization we've interviewed. Yeah. They support booksellers and
1: comic book store owners and employees all over the country. And they started as a borders nonprofit for borders employees They've always done great work and when Borders folded, they kept the foundation going and now they do support booksellers all over the country, the United States, whether you're just having a struggle paying your bills one month and need temporary help or you've had a catastrophe at your bookstore, they're there for you. And it's B-I-N-C, which was what Borders Group Inc., that was the abbreviation. So
0: BINC, they kept that name. And they, being so supportive of independent bookstores, have created a holiday gift guide that includes merchandise from independent bookstores all over the country. It's an awesome gift guide. So we'll put a link to the show notes there. Everything from tote bags to other little sidelines. And also just to remind people too that you can just give a donation to Bank in someone's name or a donation to... Anything bookish that you think your person will enjoy. Right. Yeah. That's great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And also a reminder to people that another really great gift is a subscription to Libro.fm, which is an audiobook listening platform. If you use the promo code bookcougars, you get two books for the price of one it's a wonderful listening platform. You have to put books into your library via their website, which is really user friendly. And then you can use it with an app on your phone. A percentage of the profits go to independent bookstores. Yeah, which is always a good thing. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, our last suggestion is from both of us. We always think biblio adventures are a great thing. So we are going to propose that maybe you take your loved one out on a biblio adventure go to a library or bookstore an author's home or something. We know not everything is always open. So, you know, pack a picnic. Put some hot tea or coffee or cocoa in a thermos and go somewhere beautiful or not so beautiful and just have a literary outing together. A lot of people are really interested in spending time together if
0: they're able to and having experiences together. Yeah, it's the best kind. And bonus points if you send us pictures or an email about your... Trip. Yeah, we'd love to see it. We'd love to see that and hear about it for sure. Up next is our interview with Jenna Blum. We were a little nervous. This is a first for the book Cougars. Jenna was literally on the road. She's on book tour, so she was talking to us from her car. So the sound quality on Jenna's side might not be the best. Be patient with us. We also kept it short for safety reasons. We were a little nervous. But a really fun conversation. It's a wonderful book, Woodrow on the Bench. Highly recommend. It would be a great gift, actually. It would be, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If I were
1: still a bookseller, I'd be hand-selling this one this year. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy our conversation with Jenna. For those of you who check in on our BookTube channel on YouTube, we had Jenna Blum and Carolyn Levitt on to talk about A Mighty Blaze back on April seventeenth, 2020. They created A Mighty Blaze at the very beginning of the pandemic as a way for authors to promote their new books since book tours were canceled. We are so excited to have Jenna here with us today on the podcast. Jenna is the author of three novels, most recently The Lost Family, which Emily read and loved. Most importantly, she's the dog mom of Woodrow Jones, who is the star of Jenna's first foray into nonfiction, Woodrow on the Bench, a memoir about
0: her life with Woodrow, a 14-year-old black lab. Jenna, we're so excited to have you with us today and you are literally on the road on book tour. Can you tell us where you're calling in from?
2: Yes. I think to the best of my knowledge, I'm right outside St. Louis, uh, so Wentzville, Missouri, and I just left that and I'm driving from Indiana where I just had a fantastic event at the Carmel Place Public Library to Watermark Books in Wichita, Kansas, from which I used to live down the street. Um, and where Woodrow lived for three years. So I am literally a writer on the road and I have my new black lab, Henry Higgins in the back seat. So hopefully you guys can hear me okay and he won't be too
0: obstreperous. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll get lucky and hear hear a little yelp from Professor Higgins as well. <laughs> Is this his first big road trip?
2: Well, no, actually. I got Henry in Minnesota during the pandemic and drove him from my family house in Minnesota to Boston. But I kind of said yes because at that point he was four months old and really didn't know what was happening in the world at all and so he was pretty malleable this kid he's a grown paid dog 19 months Oh, how he would be not in the car because he's great in the car but at the events but last night he attended a cabaret and he was extremely well behaved he was like a little ambassador just like his famous uncle withdrew. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: that's, <laughs> that's great, great. <laughs> So Jenna, tell us about the genesis of how you came to write a memoir about your time with Woodrow.
2: I would be happy to. Thank you. Woodrow and Event is my first memoir, as you mentioned in the introduction, my other three books have been novels, and I never aspired to write a memoir. I, I felt it was like such a Zsa Zsa Gabor thing to do and maybe a of some self-importance, but more importantly, I have a lot of memoir and I think of each memoir as sort of a blueprint for how to live through a difficult situation in life. I read Cheryl Strayed's Wild and I read Augustine Burroughs Dry uh, and I read you know, all the Eric John memoirs about how to be a writer, a female writer, a man's world and fantastic essays and I thought Who am I to try and tell anybody about how to live? I just don't have the requisite experience, and I can't think of the structure for the traumatic experiences that I have lived through. Then, Woodrow, who was my beloved 14-year-old black lab, was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and given only a few weeks to live, and this was right after my mom had passed as well. And I was bound and determined to keep him with me as long as he was comfortable, and that turned out to be Seven months, not only a few weeks. And I'm convinced the reason he lasted well into his 15th year was that we suddenly had a community spring up around us every day as we sat on Woodrow's favorite bench across the street from our downtown Boston apartment. At first, it was our dog's parents' friends and neighbors and people I knew who would bring us food and coffee and carry Woodrow's poop bags away to waste baskets so but didn't have to leave them. And then total strangers started being drawn in by my dog's canine tractor beam and charm and spending their time with us on the bench and really lifting us up. And I thought, okay, this is really extraordinary. It's seven months of my dog's life that taught me new ways about how to let people in and how to ask for help, how to receive help, how to be present. And it's a love letter to to a community. So that is something that I really want to share with my readership and hopefully new readers as well. That's the test.
1: Well, I just started reading the book this morning. I'm on page 67 or so. And I sat there reading it with my two dogs at my feet, glancing at them every now and then. And I had tears in my eyes at least twice. And as I said to Emily, they were love tears. So they were good tears. I really love how you just bring the reader into your life with Woodrow in that very intimate way. Thank you.
2: I wasn't really thinking about you guys, I'm sorry to say, like the readers when I was writing the book, which I did in about a much slender book, so you're halfway through, it's about 120 pages. Each chapter is a different month of Woodrow's life that he lived after that initial heart failure diagnosis. And when I started working on the memoir, it was during the pandemic, I had just started a company called A Mighty Blaze that connects writers and readers. And I got up an hour early every morning and wrote part of Woodrow. And what I was aspiring to do is it was to simply get down on paper what the experience of those last seven months had been as honestly and hopefully engaging as possible. And then, of course, all writing is free writing. So after I had that seven chapters down, I went back and really tried to deepen my vulnerability, which was really hard because as a writer of fiction, your whole goal is to hide your writer's self the characters and their situations but with memoir I like to think of as more underpants like you're showing your emotional underpants to your reader and saying like hey reader here's my underwear my messy underwear <laughs> it's not like my lacy victoria's secret date night boy short you know we're all a little bit messy we all have this like don't you feel better like you're not alone so that was really how I felt when I was And I'm glad that it accomplishes the intimacy that I hoped it would.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah. And one of the things I also loved about it, Jenna, is that you talk about the Woodrow effect and how Woodrow, as you mentioned already, just kind of drew people to him because of his charming personality. And I love the chapter where you talk about meeting Judy and Jonas of Jujo
2: Farm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So Woodrow was known as Woodrow the George Clooney of dogs. And for good reason. I did not give him that nickname. My friend, the novelist Lisa Borders, noticed Woodrow's prowess early on with the ladies. Woodrow had a very robust social media presence, even when he was like a young baller dog, like six or seven. And there were always ladies catching his eye, and he was always drawing women toward him. And so she said, oh, my God, your, your dog is like the George Clooney of dogs. And that sucks. Because it was true. So it was the ladies' to everybody. And about midway through our bench sit together uh, in the summer, we were sitting on a bench and a farm couple from Pennsylvania who was in town to celebrate their 55th wedding anniversary stopped at Pet Woodrow and the gentleman farmer said, Oh, how you doing, old buddy? You got some arthritis there. And I said, yeah, and he's got arthritis because of heart failure. And the guy said, yeah, I feel that, I feel that. And we started making smallpox. And they told me they ran a cattle farm that then became a, a bone broth farm. And then the wife, Judy, said, our bone broth, I wish I could dip some to Mr. Woodrow here because, it brought my husband back to life when I found him on the floor having had a near-death experience that she gave him bone broth and it was him. now. So like, these are the kinds of conversations I had with Woodrow and this one was capped off by Koonin reciting a love poem that he had to his wife for their anniversary on the bench with us and so they spent a good portion of their 55th wedding anniversary with us on the bench and the codicil to this which is not actually in the memoir is that when I was writing my acknowledgments, my favorite part of writing any book, I wrote to Judy and Jonas and said, hey, I just want to make sure that you guys are okay with me, including Jonas's poem in the book. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Judy said, Jonas, has you passed. Oh. And I wrote, had been ripped out. And... And she was like, This is so distressing, but I just want you guys to know that we spent our last anniversary with you on the bench and we were so grateful to meet you in Woodrow and you made it really special. Like I'm kind of like tearing up talking about this. You made it really special for us and we're so honored to have Jonas's poem preserved in writing in this book. So thank you for sharing that with the world. And like this is a kind of connectivity. That Woodrow engendered. And that's why I wanted to share it with everybody. It was just every day was a feel good experience, no matter how hard it
0: got. Yeah. And I wanted also, you already mentioned this, but Woodrow has his own Instagram account. And as I was reading the book, I immediately went to the Instagram account. And there's a lovely picture of Judy and Jonas sitting on the bench. So that's a, a really nice part of the experience of reading the book as well. I encourage people as they're reading it to. Go look at the beautiful pictures you have of Woodrow and the cast of characters that you meet along the way in the memoir.
2: Thank you. Yes. So I used Woodrow's Instagram. He also is on Facebook at Woodrow the Charged Clooney of Dogs on Instagram. He's Woodrow on the bench. And on Twitter, he's Woodrow on bench. And such are his magical powers that he can still participate in social media from beyond the grave. So he is still there, (laughs) commenting on humans and his experiences. And I used his Instagram as sort of a visual journal while we were on the bench because I didn't have the bandwidth to really write much else. But every day, if we met somebody extraordinary, I would take a picture and say, hey, you might have a picture of this Instagram. And then when I was working on the memoir, I went back to his Instagram to look at all the extraordinary people we met. And it was so amazing to relive that. And I hope for readers, it's sort of a meta-dimension memoirs to be able to say, oh my gosh, there are all the sorority girls that would go charmed one
0: day. It worked for me. It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Thank you. So glad. So
1: glad. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you including something very practical in the book, and that is the questionnaire about the quality of life for one's animals that you are taking care of. We had that for our last dog, Lola, who had been sick for a while, and it was very helpful for us to make that heart-wrenching decision. And I wish I'd had it before for my cat, Wolfie, who was one of the big loves of my life. Unfortunately, I didn't have such great guidance. I just wanted to thank you for including that, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about using that in your own experience.
2: Absolutely. And Wolfie, oh my goodness, I'm sorry that you lost them, but I will tell Woodrow to look for them. They can all have a big party on the other side of the river. Thank you. When he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, and it's not a condition that's curable, but sometimes animals live with it for a long time. So he got a lot of very expensive medications. He was already arthritic, as many old labs are, and he was 14, which basically is like Methuselah for a lab. And I knew a lot of people would have put him down that. to say, like, okay, first the legs are going, now the heart's going, you know, forget it. But his personality was still so intact. And I thought of Anna Quinlan's memoir called Good Dogs Stay, and how she wrote in that memoir, if the nose and the tail still work, the dog is happy. And Woodrow's nose was still working, his tail was still something, his appetite was still good. He loved holding court by his bench. And so I thought I will keep him with me, but because dogs can't talk per se, although Woodrow obviously talks to me a lot in the book, and he sounds like a cross between George Clooney and Barack Obama, so you know, kind of the perfect guy. But when it was time to go, I called his home vet, Dr. Mimi, and said, can you please help me understand, like, when is it time for us to help him cross that big river, and when am I holding on too long? And he sent me a very practical quality of life indicator that both evaluated Woodrow's quality of life and my quality of life as his human, Um, and factors that I had never thought of. Like, obviously, if your pet can't eat or is having a really hard time with digestion um, and can't move and seems really miserable. You can kind of see that even though you desperately don't want to. But I also realized that my own quality of life was being compromised and shrinking to like a tiny dot. Like I was afraid to leave my house because I might come back and find him dead or have an accident. Like I didn't travel anymore. I could hardly get him in and out of the house by myself. And by the last week of his life, we both knew, I mean, I, I could tell, I felt it kind of closing in on me that his last days were upon us, and I would encourage people to look at the quality of life indicator and to also really pay attention to your pet because they do let you know, like Woodrow in that last week started hiding in places in the house where he had never gone before, I think for privacy, and he also had this sort of like thousand yard stare. He wouldn't look at me very much, he was looking into the middle distance, and I think he was really preparing for his journey. So. I don't regret keeping him with me as long as I did because I think up until that last week, he really did enjoy his life. And I absolutely know that it was time to let him go, even though it was so incredibly difficult and I I really fought it. But I I did know. And I think that in as much as there is such a thing as a good death, which there is, he had one.
0: Yeah. And, you know, thank you, Jenna, for that information. And just, you know, we're so sorry for your loss. We really are. I know it was it was and is a really hard one
2: thank you it is hard i wrote a piece for a uh, medium about this by bivy owens about grief because woodrow on the bench is not just for people who are suffering through the grief over losing an animal um, aren't also looking at that last chapter of their animal's life and both of those things are tremendously hard I i said i had lost my mom a couple of months before woodrow passed and so the grief i had for my mom felt very numbing. And then the grief I had for Woodrow was incredibly immediate and debilitating and sharp. And I, I honestly wasn't sure I would live through it. You know, my mom, I loved her. I talked to her every week. We were very close. We were Thelma and Louise, and she was always Selma, and I was always Louise. <laughs> but our relationship was really complicated as most human relationships are. And so the grief was confusing. But with our animals, the grief is so pure. So for anybody who says, Oh, it's just a dog. Like, why are you so upset? Like, get over it. Those people, I think, don't understand the nature of grief and allowing yourself to really mourn that passage. Like, our animals are our friends, and our companions, our structure, our choice. So if you are going through that or if you're going through grief over a person, I hope this book is helpful
0: to you. The other thing you really talk about in the book and really weave it through beautifully, I think, is your own, some of your relationships with partners and your feeling of loneliness. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to just read a little a piece and and ask you a question about it. Is that okay?
2: Oh, I would be honored.
0: It was the ticking clock. For me, this wasn't biological, at least not in terms of children. It was the sound of what I feared was lifelong loneliness, the only sound in an apartment where no other person lived. The ticking clock which was actually a clock I loved, a walnut wall clock my dad had bought me from Nantucket for my 30th birthday, marked off the minutes and hours and days and months and years of sitting in a corner of my couch with a book on my lap, of dinners eaten cross-legged in front of the TV, of weekends blending into weekdays and all holidays the same. It was the sound in the background when one night I choked on a piece of chicken while eating the elaborate Coca Vin I'd prepared for myself, and while I tried to cough it up, all I could think about was how embarrassing it would be to die alone from choking on a piece of chicken. When I finally hacked it up, I said, oh, thank you, God. And then after a pause, started eating again. It was really good, Coca The clock ticked throughout. The clock, the clock, the fucking clock. I have to tell you, Jenna, when I was reading this, I have a tide clock hanging in my house and it ticks. <laughs> and I just thought it was hilarious that it was ticking as I was reading this. But then later, as Woodrow's life really starts to get shorter and smaller, as does yours, as you were just referring to, you started to invite friends in to spend time with you and write with you, sit at a table and write with you, which I just love. And then one of the things you talk about there is as two of your writing friends are packing up to leave, you say, I realized one reason it might have been hard for me to let people in. It was all the more lonesome when they were gone, which just I gasped when I read that sentence. It's an amazing sentence. So talk to us about that, about the experience of friendship and love and all of that that you experienced along with Woodrow during his time, those 14 years you had together.
2: Thank you so much for reading that paragraph. It's such an honor to hear your own words being read back to you. And I got kind of choked up listening to it. The memoir about my own life was not in the first draft. The first draft was kind of a straight from the hip description of what Woodrow's last seven months were like. And I knew I wanted each month to be a lesson But I didn't have as much of myself in the book, not enough emotional underpants as I was referring to before. And at some point, I was sitting with the very friends you were talking about, describing the book to them and saying, you know, I was all alone on the bench, I was all alone in in the apartment. And so, you know, it was really hard for me to take care of Woodrow by myself. And my friend Mark, who I mentioned in the memoir, said, wait, J.B., J.B., hold up one second. He said, why were you all alone? On the bench? Why were you all alone in the apartment before you started inviting us in? He was kind of a new friend. And he said, I see from the outside this amazingly successful woman with this fantastic career. You have a million friends, you have a great job, like your life is really enviable, and yet you feel really alone. And I said, Well, I don't at this very moment because you guys are here, but I had gotten sports, I had broken off an engagement. I had chosen not to have children because I wanted to focus on my career. And all of these choices were right for me and they also came with consequences. And one of the consequences was that I often felt powerfully alone except for my dog. And then what I was facing as Woodrow, as his life drew down was looking down the gun barrel at a time when I would not have my dog and I would be in this place totally by myself and hear only my own heart and only the clock. And so it was actually my ages. Stephanie, who advised me to invite people into my house. She's like, look, Jenna, you know, I think that your people would do everything for you, and I want you to have some company in the house. you get used to it before Sir Woodrow leaves this earth? I mean, not, none of us wanted to happen, but I think you need to start a new habit. So he encouraged me to let people in, and I did, and Mark encouraged me to put that depth of loneliness in the memoir, the or even emotionally vulnerable, the best work for other people making untraditional life choices and saying, you know what, these choices were right for me. My life is mostly really rich and full, and sometimes it's lonely, and it has its price tags, but what life doesn't, and my dog taught me to let people in to be vulnerable, to ask for help, and to be honest, and all of that is okay. And honestly, that lesson has resonated with me. It's me during the pandemic when I was still calling friends and saying like, Hey, I feel really, really isolated. Like, let's go hike in the woods, or can you like come meet me outside somewhere? And now I'm on the road with my new dog, and I'm supposed to write a piece for Oprah.com tomorrow about how love is not just romantic love or parent-child love, any love that sustains you and any love that you have in your life is legit love: animal love, friend love, neighbor love, community love. Like, all of it is love.
1: Amen. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That is just so powerful and just profound. And I think loneliness needs to be acknowledged more because it's something we all have. Even as your friend said, you're successful, well balanced, all those things, but we still have to cope with that.
2: I'm so glad you said that because I felt like, oh my goodness! But that's said to Mark at the table at that point when we were talking about it, was, are people not going to find this completely pathetic? And he was like, Do you not think loneliness is part of the human condition? And I realized that I had been feeling ashamed of my loneliness, like it was something that I had done by making these choices. But I think everybody feels lonely sometimes. You can have a marriage of 55 years and all of a sudden your spouse is gone and you're going to be lonely. Or you can be within a relationship and feel dreadfully lonely to be out of a relationship and not feel lonely because you're buoyed up by all these people and animals and even the world around you. Like I'm out on tour, I think the world is an amazing place. i um, just looking for beauty, makes me feel less lonely. So, thank you for encouraging me to acknowledge the loneliness, because I think it also helps find it too. Well,
0: Jenna, we have kept you past the time we promised we would talk to you because we know you're driving, and I think you told us you have 12 hours on the road ahead of you. So, we wish you very safe travels. Really, best of luck on your book tour. We're gonna. Post links in the show notes to your tour so people can come and find you or watch you on virtual platforms, all of the above. We wish you so much success with the book. It's a beautiful book. It will make you cry. As Chris said, happy tears, some sad tears, but all good tears. Tears of love. Tears of love.
2: I love that book, Cougars, and I love you, girls. Thank you for having me on to talk about Woodrow. It means so much Thank
0: you. And uh, we hope Professor Henry Higgins behaves the rest of the trip as well. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your travels.
2: Thank you. Thank you, you guys. Happy meeting everybody. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page, where your purchase will help support not only the Book Cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody.
2: This episode is edited by Pat Keough, Sound Design.